This week's podcast is sponsored by Destinations Career Academy, powered by K-12. Destinations serves school districts with flexible CTE solutions to get students future ready for a changing job market, providing career exploration, real-world experience, and certifications prep. Learn more at destinationsacademy.com school hyphen districts. That's destinationsacademy.com school hyphen districts. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young. So I was spending too much time clicking around on the internet the other day when I came across a viral video that caught my attention. It captured the frustration that I think many parents feel these days about how often and how long their kids are on screens. It shows a dad who's frustrated by how much his kids are playing video games, so He apparently has taken the video game PC out into his garage, and as horrified family members look on, he he bashes it with a sledgehammer. So, seriously, what are you doing? Oh my God, what are you doing? There are actually loads of these videos out there on the web. One shows a mom destroying her daughter's cell phone with a hammer. Others involve parents throwing Xboxes out of windows or burning video game discs in bonfires. Some of these are on sort of humor sites if you're looking online, and so I don't know if, if they're staged or, or what. And of course, most people I know would not go this far to rage against the machines of their kids. But many parents clearly do feel that tech use in their homes is, is getting out of control. And then there's the guilt. I mean, it doesn't help that about every week new articles come out warning parents about how dangerous excessive screen time can be for childhood development. At the same time, more schools are are giving kids iPads and Chromebooks and other devices for their homework and for school projects. And we adults are on our phones all the time. Well, a lot of us. So figuring out how much screens are too much is something that many folks can relate to. Today, we're diving into this issue of screen time with a guest who, for years, has tracked research about the impact of screen media on children and young people. She's Lisa Guernsey director of the Teaching, Learning, and Tech program at New America. She even wrote a book that's called Screen Time, and a more recent one called Tap, Click, Read, Growing Readers in a World of Screens. I have to mention, I have known Lisa for a long time. In fact, we both worked together um, 20 years ago or so as reporters at the Chronicle of Higher Education back when we were both just starting our careers. And now we actually both have kids of our own. So this issue is not just some abstract thing. Lisa actually avoids the word screen time these days, for reasons that we'll hear about in a minute. She says she now has a better way of thinking about regulating tech, including a model of how educators and librarians can become better mentors for students and parents. I started by asking Lisa how she sees the current state of debate when it comes to screen time. I really get it when it comes to the anxiety, because that's why I started working in this line of research in the first place. I was a parent with a lot of questions and a lot of worry. And at the time, my kids were really little. They were, you know, babies and toddlers. And there were so many headlines about what I was doing wrong, Mm. essentially. As a parent. As a parent, you know, about um, what uh, screen media was going to do to my kids' brains. Um, And back then, it was even before the days of of apps and touchscreens. But there was still just a lot of of hand-wringing. And honestly, some of it was, was well-founded. So what I did was looked into the, the research. Like, what do we know from developmental science? What do we know from the science of media and children? 
Uh, what do we know about how children are understanding something that's two-dimensional on a screen versus hands-on kind of uh, learning? And then I've taken that over the years up through the ages. So as my kids have grown up, I've been continuing to probe and try to understand what the research is telling us. The one really big kind of takeaway that stayed with me throughout is that this is not really a question about how much time children's eyeballs are looking at a screen. That's mm -hmm. how we've been talking about it, that the word screen time has obviously become, had, had a lot of currency in our like kind of conversations about this. But what people are really concerned about, honestly, is not screen time, it's mindless time, or it's sedentary time, or it's, you know, being alone and not having anybody to turn to time. That, that's what people are really worried about. Um, and I've found that it's, it's become kind of a, a frustrating situation because it's hard for the media to kind of get into that nuance. And so if only parents and educators are hearing about the headlines and not getting into the nuance, they really don't know where to go and where to turn. And so the narrative of screen time, how would you then, is there a, an easy uh, phrase that, that you, would, you would propose instead of screen time? Well, I do like to say screen media instead of time. Um, I say, you know, that this is a, a question of what are the effects of screen media? And then we can start understanding better what are the effects of media of all kinds, right? But mm, um, mm. whether that's the stories that our, our kids and our students are experiencing, um, whether that's how they're learning to communicate themselves by what they're seeing communicated through media. And then you can start having a conversation about learning and about literacy um, instead of just a question of like uh, health and well-being, which is still important in this conversation for sure. Um, so that's the first thing, you know, talking about what does screen media mean to our children and our kids and our students. But then the other piece that I've found helpful and that can take us in some deeper directions is to think about what I call the three C's. So what is the content on the screen? So content is the first C. What is the context of that screen use? Is somebody sitting with the student? Are they working on a project together? Is this something where they're creating instead of consuming? And then a third C is the child. So that individual student, that individual child, and every student's gonna come with their own needs, their own anxieties, their own predilections about how they're using different kinds of media, um, as well as their own, I mean, especially when we're talking about little kids, um, there are developmental delays to take into account. There are you know, huge differences in development by age. Um, so we can't just do a broad brush statement of like banning screen time when we're not taking into account the three C's. In a way too, is there a way in which like screens end up being used by different types of families and, and educators settings in different ways? You know what I mean? Is that, is that part of the context then? Is that... And maybe banning actually could keep people from from maybe some healthy use of, of devices. Right, right. And so I think that like the good news is that outright bans are rare. The conversation is typically more about limits. And so then, then we start getting into a place that can be a little bit more helpful to parents and to educators. Um, but every family is so different and there are so many different contexts. So um, for example, the... American Academy of Pediatrics has been putting out guidelines about screen media use with, with kids and with students for a long time. And their latest guidelines in 2016 moved in a really positive direction because they started understanding different contexts. And one in particular was that using FaceTime, 
to interact with like grandparents or even having teachers use kind of FaceTime in a classroom to like, you know, talk to a NASA researcher. Like those are positive experiences that where you're using screen media in ways that are leading to interaction and conversation. And now that is potentially quite different from a kid sitting by themselves with their, their earphones on looking right. at some software that doesn't even make sense to them. Right. So um, those are some of the differences, but then there's also differences just across families. If you have lots of siblings and you're trying to kind of manage these questions of like limiting screen time, how do you do that when you have one child who's four, one who's six and one who's like 14? Um, and then there's of course just families are going through all sorts of different things. So maybe a, a child is really sick and they're at home all the time and they have to be, they're almost like, you know, quarantined and this is the way that they can kind of interact with the world. Um, or you have situations where families don't feel like it's safe for their kids to be playing outside and they want their kids to be able to interact together in some way. And so they're using kind of interactive kind of gaming software as that. Um, so those are some, you know, reasons why. And then of course, then that's the big, big problem is that we're not understanding just the stress that families are under in general. And so there could be a lot, and I, I do think we see this, that there's a lot of cases of, of parents kind of handing over a device to occupy their child because that parent is going through so many other things or trying to like work extra hours or it feels incredibly kind of stressed or just themselves don't know how to manage their own screen media use and haven't found how to, to regulate because um, this is this whole new world that we're in and figuring out how to regulate our screen use in general. After the break, I'll look at a new way that some schools and libraries are trying when it comes to teaching healthy use of screen media. And we talked to a third grader to get his perspective. Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Destinations Career Academy, powered by K-12, a provider of online courses, learning management systems, and curricula. I asked Mike Dardaris, Senior Director of Career Readiness Education at K-12, why project-based learning is key to proper career and technical education. You know, now with the internet, content is important, but it's accessible by, to anybody with a cell phone or, or an internet connection, right? So now it's, it's not necessarily about content specific, it's about process and the process of learning and the process of accessing and sifting out what is not good information and what's quality information. And, and project-based learning is about that. And then having a public display of knowledge at the end. So whether it's a pitch, whether it's a gallery walk where you have business partners walk through looking at your different ideas, whether it's a presentation, in addition to the content knowledge, you also have the presentation skills that have to go along with that, which in business, like I'm doing right now with you, right? It's very important to be able to have a conversation with two professionals and talk about things you love and do it in an articulate way. We haven't always done that in education. Thanks again to Destinations Career Academy and K-12 for their support. Now back to the episode. Yeah, you probably know about these, but did you have you heard of these these videos that are have gone viral on YouTube for years now? Apparently, um, where parents are um, are taking away their their like the the students or the the kids Xbox or phone and like smashing it with a sledgehammer. What do we make of that? Like, you know, what is these are kind of interesting, extreme kind of uh, performances in in a way. Yeah, I feel like they are. I mean, obviously, they're a sign of frustration. Um, I think they send a really dangerous signal <laughs> personally. Sure, um, sure. I think that, you know, but, but there's like this, this immense frustration. I think that we're all, um, 
maybe not everybody, but a lot of us are feeling right now where we feel like we haven't, we don't have control anymore over how we're using all these different devices and how our kids are using them. And we hate the tantrums that arise when we're just snatching them away. And we wish they hadn't, we hadn't snatched them away, but we hate that that tantrum's happening and we hate that this is what's led to. Um, and we just wish these things were out of our lives entirely. And um, yeah, as a, as a parent and as someone who's also been in like lots of classrooms, I, I get it. I, I really do understand it, but we have got to find kind of new paths that are thinking about learning, about thinking about how children are using media in ways that build their curiosity and their sense of the world and their understanding of like where the messages are coming from instead of just like demonizing it because that's so, not going to get us anywhere. My oldest son is now eight and I showed him those videos actually this morning and he was just like, whoa. <laughs> uh, and you know, we, we definitely like struggle sometimes with, you know, the, you know, taking them away without, you know, without sledgehammers, but yeah. And you, I mean, you, uh, this has been a couple of years now. How old are your daughters now? You have two daughters. Yeah. So like I said, I've been tra tra you know, obviously tracking them, <laughs> not really tracking them, but tracking them all along. Um, so I now have a 15 year old and a 17 year old. So wow. um, yeah. we're in like, in that, in this, in the space of, you know, having high school students and, um, and how they're using digital media, but mostly social media is a, is a huge um, area of terrain to explore as well with lots yeah. of, lots of, of pitfalls for sure. But I, I will say that I, I feel very lucky that I kind of was somehow set up to look at these issues as closely as I did when they were younger, because they are, we're always talking about, we're always talking about media. We're always talking about what they're using and where they're, where they're getting their information and how they're creating. And so that's led to just a lot of openings for really interesting conversations in our household and a sense that, uh, a sense of not necessarily, there's always been limits, but a sense that there are possibilities and there's ways to move forward instead of a sense of being closed off or having to hide this from mom because she's going to be upset. Um, yeah, so no, I know I what do, you mean. One of yeah. the pieces of advice I've given to to folks who, who ask when I go and talk to parent groups is just keeping a line of communication open about how screen media is used is really important. The, you, your daughter wrote an essay, right, with you a couple years ago about her view of like, this was something about like banning Facebook or something, right? It was like a reaction to something. It's been a couple years. Yeah, it was in Slate. So yeah. I sometimes write for Slate. And um, my editor there asked if I would write about this new data that was coming about out um, that seemed to show that smartphones were like ruining a whole, whole generation of kids and causing them to be really depressed and unhappy, um, which is not exactly what the data shows. Um, uh -huh. causal, causal relationships are really hard to get out of that data. But what I did was instead of writing about my take on it, I asked my daughter who was 15 at the time if she would write it with me. And she was actually an act I can't remember, I think she was at camp. So we actually wrote it together remotely and then just traded each other's like paragraphs and then submitted it. But my daughter was irritated by this study <laughs> to no end. And she was, she herself was like, oh my God, we can't win as teenagers. You tell us to do this, you tell us to do that, you tell us we're not allowed to do this. And then you take everything away from us and then you wonder why we're unhappy and why we're depressed. And you put all the stress on us to have to get into college and you tell us to do active shooter drills and you wonder why we're depressed. And then you say it's our smartphones and the only way we can ever kind of even communicate with our peers to deal with all the stress is through our smartphones. You tell us you want to take away our smartphones. 
So it was a really interesting piece. I wish that she could have written the whole thing because she had a great, <laughs> she had a great point to make. I'll put a link in our show notes for this. This is great. I remember that was a really, it was, it was a really, um, and it was at a time again, like early discussion of this, like depression generation because of these phones, which is still very much in the, in the news. As an idea. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we still haven't figured it out. I do think that there's a lot to untangle there. Like there are connections, whether they're causal relationships or not, but there really are some connections between screen media use and mm -hmm. how we feel about ourselves and how we connect with other people. Um, and whether it's amplifying feelings of being kind of alone or not is something we need to, we need to dig into that for sure. I was actually inspired by uh, that essay Lisa co-wrote with her daughter, and I decided to see what my own kids thought. So I interviewed my older son um, just before he caught the school bus the other day. He's eight. Why do you like screens so much to like watch video, watch Netflix and video games? Um, because it's entertaining and it gives you something to do when you don't want to do anything else. And what do you mean you don't want to do anything else? Sometimes I'm just in the, I just don't, I'm just kind of bored. I don't want to read. I don't want to like do any homework. So, and so I just like, I, I just like want to watch something. It's just fun. So do you guys use iPads at school? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, so we use iPads at school, but my teachers say I mainly, mainly not at school. They're they're a tool, not a toy. And what do they what do they mean by that? So they mean like we're not we're we we're not supposed to be playing with our iPad at school. We're like supposed to be using it for like IXL and like like other things that like we need to do for our um for our learning okay and so is that pretty much what people do then you you only use it for like kind of learning at school yeah yeah and um are there things that you guys wish you could do on the ipads at school but you can't yeah well, there are like some apps like uh i want to be able to call you on my ipad and just what would you say no, we um so we have this um thing called self service. That's where we get all our apps. But um my teacher only allows some apps on self service. There's like a super low range of apps. But um but I really want to get messages and um and um and um and phone calls, but I can't do that. So my son does have a sense that this tablet computer he loves can do lots of things. Sometimes it's a toy, sometimes it's a tool for learning. It just depends on how he uses it. Lisa thinks schools and libraries are just the place to help students learn that kind of distinction. She calls for a new role in education that she calls media mentors. A media mentor is somebody who is alongside an educator or a student or a parent, mentoring them on their the choices they might want to make about with these screens with, right. with these screens essentially and that can be somebody who right now like it's been mentioned in different things that have come out from the american academy of pediatrics maybe a parent who's like acting more as a mentor instead of being like a strict authoritarian but it's also something that in my work i'm seeing in public libraries 
hmm. as librarians are recognizing that they already have a lot of the skills that are involved in curating and making good choices about different media, finding media that matches interest, um, yeah. searching, understanding sources, and that they um, they want to upskill. They want to like update the way they understand this in a in a more digital context, and they want to make sure they're applying that in ways that help the community members who come into their library, and also who help. They want to help teachers because a lot mm -hmm. of teachers are coming to them asking these questions. So media mentorship programs are, are coming along in various public library settings. In Maryland, I was part of a program there where we ran book study programs. There's a book out called Becoming a Media Mentor um, that was published by the American Library Association. What does it look like? Kind of, can you give an example, like a kind of a, with a, you know, like, so a student is one-on-one -on -one with this mentor or how does it work? No, so that's a great question. And I think what it points to is that there's still a lot of like definition to the refining to do in the particular um, programs that I'm aware of and been involved in. It's not so much like one-on-one -on -one all the time, mm. but it is recognizing that this is not about like broadcasting out, you know, big guidelines and expecting people to like just take up those guidelines. This is about first understanding what a, a person, an educator or a parent's questions are. So for example, in a public library setting, you may have a parent who goes to the children's librarian and who is asking, you know, we're about to go on a road trip. I know that I really shouldn't give certain apps to my kids, but I want to put a couple of apps on my phone so I have something for them to do in the back of the car. It's going to be eight hours. And I have one, you know, one child who's almost reading and I have another child who like loves anything with Scooby-Doo. Can you help? You know, and so that that media mentor then can, in kind of an interview in a non-judgmental way, kind of talk a little bit more to that parent, that family member. Oh, okay, so this is what you're looking for. Let me see if I can find certain things like this. And that person also can help um, that parent or maybe educator think um, more broadly also about the connections between a print book that they might also bring on their trip and a game that they might put on their phone and a video that they might be able to then play together or watch together as a family and kind of help to guide the, the use of media in a way that leads to more learning and that also is just tuned into what the family wants or what that educator wants. Hmm, like a media playlist that recommended by. Right, right. And huh. these media mentors also, they have to build skills in understanding their community members. So. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of a lot of public libraries now, it's new immigrant families who are coming in. So they're looking for things in different languages. They're um, recognizing there are a lot of different like religious and other cultural a lot of aspects they need to be taking into account. And so they need to gain some skills in doing that in a really culturally responsive way. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so this is um, something that people are actually starting to, to put into place. Exactly. Yeah, we'll be starting a, um, to help with the development of this in Illinois in the, mm -hmm. in the coming year through Chicago Public Library and a couple other libraries, library systems out there. And we're learning a lot from what, um, what's been transpiring in Maryland. And then um, ALA and, and, and a subgroup of the American Library Association called ALSC, the Association for Library Services to Children, um, continue to kind of develop what does this look like. So I, I think school librarians and educators who are instructional technologists or who are in um, a public school space may already be doing a lot of these things too and may not you know, know the term media mentor, but are in that same space looking for that same guidance, wanting to like build up their skills. Um, and the more that we can do to bring people together, like learn from each other and then also learn from 
what we're learning, you know, the science of what works and what doesn't. It could be a huge help to parents and educators. Mm-hmm. And and again, it's it seems like the biggest one of the biggest takeaways from from our whole conversation or the a theme running through it is, it's it's kind of not the ban, but to to kind of and not to say all of it's equal, but to sort of say what what are you doing with the screen? Yeah, exactly. Like really getting into the questions of content that are tuned into the questions of the child that are understanding the context, right? Those three C's come back again. But um, it's also, and, and this is where it's still very early days, but the way we're seeing it here at New America is this is very much tied into media literacy and how to prevent uh, being dis- mis- misled by disinformation. I mean, to really build a, a generation of, of students and a citizenry that understands how to use media in ways that um, are you know, for the public good and for their own learning versus kind of feeling like they're out of control, that they don't have control over the media that they see or that they don't really know where it's coming from anymore. Maybe it's just shut down because they don't know or sharing when they don't really know what they're sharing. Um, we see that one of the really key ways in the long term to avoid a world of, of disinformation and, and people shutting down is to empower them, to help to have mentors that they can go to and to give them kind of new skill sets for filtering and for finding the really good stuff and for learning and for following their curiosity and using screen media to do that. Well, I think it's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, Lisa, for, for sharing with, uh, with us today. Yeah, happy to do it. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Each week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you like it, you should subscribe and tell a friend we're out here. And we are about exactly a month away from our first live podcast event. As I said last week, uh, we're going to be doing a live taping of this podcast in front of an audience at South by Southwest EDU in Austin. That's on March 9th. Uh, It's actually at 11 a.m. if you're there. Um, We're going to be talking about the pushback by some students against how big data is being used in education. It should be lively and hope to catch you there. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. And special thanks to our tireless editorial leader at EdSurge, Tony Wan, and the head of EdSurge, Betsy Corcoran, and everyone behind the scenes. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening. And instead of the closing piano music, we leave you with more sounds of parents smashing electronics.